following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. We're continuing this morning our journey through 1 Timothy. And as I said, we'll find ourselves in chapter 3 and begin uh, two weeks at looking at the qualification of the leaders in the church. Today, uh, our passage is on elders, our overseers, and then next week we'll be looking at the office of the deacon. So a quick review of where we've been so far in this book, keeping in mind that uh, Paul's letter to Timothy was written to order to clarify some things about what life and order in the church should look like and what we should expect to find when we walk through the doors of the church and and spend time here together. Timothy was dealing with some challenging issues in the Ephesian church at the time, and Paul comes along alongside this uh, young pastor and encourages him to stay in Ephesus and then gives him some instruction and counsel on how to deal with the issues that he was facing in the church then. In chapter 1, Paul was addressing the issue of pastors and teachers who were teaching false doctrine. They were giving credibility to fables, to endless genealogies, promoting speculation, vain discussion, and they were doing so with confidence and apparently some level of authority as they taught. They were leaders in the church who were teaching with no idea what they were teaching or what they were affirming. In chapter 2, Paul gives them some instruction. He begins that chapter with some instruction on prayer. Tells that we should be people of prayer, a church of prayer, specifically for the kings and all those who are in high positions. And then he gives the reasons why we should be praying for them. He says that we may lead peaceful and godly and dignified lives. He concludes chapter 2 with the challenging issue of the different roles that men and women were to have in regards to authority, teaching, and leadership in the church. We can gather from Paul's words so far in the first two chapters, and we'll see it again as we get into chapters 4, 5, and and 6, that the leaders in the Ephesian church had had sadly and quite tragically departed from the word of God and his design and his intention for leadership. So now as we turn to chapter 3, Paul gives us what is his single longest text on the character qualities of leaders. Again, overseers, elders this morning, deacons next week. So what's the big idea for this morning? It's this. Good leadership is essential to the life of the church. The men who lead should be men of passion, combined with a strong, mature, and godly character. Men who lead by the example of a life that reflects the power of the gospel at work in them. So, Before we get to this text this morning, let me make a quick comment on the use of the terms of elder and uh, pastor and overseer. Three different English words that come from three different Greek words, but it's our view that these three um, these three roles or functions all apply and describe the one office that's typically and traditionally called the office of a pastor. So this morning you're going to hear me bouncing back and forth between these third these three, and as I do so, we view them as being interchangeable again for the same office. So overseer it reply uh, indicates. The, the, uh, the, uh, the role of providing oversight and leadership of the church. Pastor refers to the role of providing care and nurturing for the, the body. And elder speaks to the need that these men should be spiritually mature. At CLF, we have six men who hold the office of pastor. 
There's Dave York, Mike Keller, Chris Guastafaro, Dave Rubel, Bill Hurd, and myself. For those who don't know me, I'm Dave Quilla. I'm the executive pastor here. We are all equally pastors. We are all equally elders. And we are all equally overseers at the church. We don't have three pastors and three elders. We don't have four elders and two pastors or any other combination of six. The six of us together make up the board of elders and we serve on the team as equals. There's no distinction made when it comes to making decisions or providing care to the church. We are a group of six men who work together as a plurality to lead the church, to care for it, and to oversee its care and its provision. So now if you want to, please stand with me as we read the text for this morning. And we stand here at CLF out of respect and honor for the word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of leaders, Lord, men who are called to care for your church, to disciple to teach your word, Lord, to pray for your people, to encourage them in their faith. We thank you, Lord, that you have set a high standard for these men. Lord, you want them to be men who lead by example. I thank you that we have those kind of men at this church. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Help us to see how you um, desire for men who lead, lead to live lives, lives that can be followed, lives that are example to the church. We're grateful that you set a high standard. Help us to do nothing less. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start with the first point in your outline this morning. It's the why. Why is this text important to us? There may be some of you this morning who read ahead from last week, know that we've just finished up chapter 2. Maybe you flipped the page and, and read the first part of chapter 3 and said, cool, I'm going to get a week off. We're going to be talking about elders, and I'm not an elder, so that's going to be a great chance for me to get a little nap, maybe catch up on the sports scores, my news feed. We say, if that is you, you're wrong. This text applies to the entire church, not just the elders. So I want you to be paying attention. Yes, it's laying out qualifications for elders, for pastors. But this text is important for everyone who's here this morning or watching online. Why? Well, Paul gives us some reasons, and we're going to jump into those. 
First, Paul himself says this is an important, a very important text. He begins this passage with this interesting way. He says this statement or this saying is trustworthy. You could easily translate that as saying this is a true saying. This is a faithful saying. Paul uses this opening to emphasize the value and the importance of what he's about to say. So Paul's saying to Timothy, set down your phone, turn off the TV, let me see your eyes. I've got something very important to say. I'm going to tell you about the importance and the value of what it means to be an elder, an overseer in the church. Paul uses those words five times in his letters to Timothy and once in the, in the letter to Titus. And he does it to convey a sense of importance and value on what he has either just said or about to say. It's factual. It's obvious. It's clear. It's worth listening to. One time he uses it and he says, this this saying is trustworthy. And he writes that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's a pretty important statement that Paul is making. And he uses it here to say that this statement too, this saying is is equally important. That that, That if anyone who aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Paul says both of these important, that Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost, to save sinners, and a man who aspires to the office of an overseer desires a noble task. He places them on the on on equal and says these are both important. You need to be listening. Secondly, Paul felt it was important enough to cover it twice. He covers it here in his letter to Timothy, and he's going to cover it again, or he covers it again in his letter to Titus. The church needed to understand what the qualifications that are expected of the men who will lead the church. Not just anyone is qualified to lead the people of God. Those who lead, who teach, who encourage, those who are called to disciple and train and shepherd God's church must be qualified to do so. John MacArthur put it this way. He says, it goes without saying that whoever leads in the church will determine what the church becomes in large measure. The life of the church, the ministry of the church, the testimony of the church, the impact of the church, the reputation of the church. The character of the church, the emphasis of the church, all of that is dependent on the leadership of the church. And you can look at a church and you can determine by the nature of its ministry the kind of leadership that it has. And there are abundant passages in Scripture to support what uh, John MacArthur has just said. Luke chapter 6, verse 40 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. 1 Corinthians 11 Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 4, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. God knows that his people need examples that they can follow. And God expects the men who lead the church to be men of faith. Men who are godly, who have godly and moral character. Men who can lead by example. Men whose lives reflect the transformative power of the gospel at work in their lives. So even if you aren't uh, an elder at CLF this morning, have no plans or desires to be an elder, this passage is still important for you. You need to know and understand what the qualifications are for the men who you are going to trust with your spiritual care and that of your family. Does the character of the pastors of CLF match these qualifications? 
Do they, do we, by the way that we live our lives, do we lead you by example? Not just do as I say, but do as I do as well. So do our lives reflect what we teach? If you're new at CLF and are considering becoming a member here, good question in your process of evaluating a church is this. Does the character of the pastors pass muster? It may be hard to discern just by seeing us for a couple hours on a Sunday morning, but hopefully over the course of of weeks and months you'll get to know us a little better. And if not, feel free to ask any member who's been here for a while. Those that have been here and got to observe us and know us, ask them, do these men match the qualifications? The church in Ephesus had a problem. This was a a church that was started by Paul. He was there and pastoring the church for three years. He had trained and prepared a group of men, a group of godly men to lead the church. He had installed them as elders. They would have been men who were well-grounded in doctrine. They would have understood the gospel. They could defend their doctrine. They were men that Paul could trust to lead and to care for and to teach and to shepherd the church as he was about ready to depart and continue on his journeys to take the gospel to new cities and to new regions around the world. Sadly, though, the church experienced a decline in the years since Paul had left. It was now adrift with false teachers and weak leaders. The very thing that Paul had prophesied would happen when he met with the Ephesian elders related to us in Acts 20. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Now, many years later, this prophecy was being fulfilled. So Paul writes to Timothy and instructs him on how to be about fixing things. What was wrong in the Ephesian church? And he spends considerable amount of time now devoting his time and his, his focus with, with Timothy on the role of leadership. Or might, we might say better for the Ephesian church was a lack of leadership. There were expectations of what the men who lead the church are to be. And Paul lays those out for Timothy and for us as well today. So again, if you think this passage isn't important or doesn't apply to you, I encourage you to reconsider. This is a very important passage for the members of this church. The church in a broad way, in a broad sense, has become, in many churches, way too lenient on what they expect from their leaders and how they expect them to live and how they go about selecting them. Paul sets the bar very, very high. I've been at CLF now for a little over four years, and I've had the opportunity to interact with the elders here in a variety of settings. I've seen them at work. We've been in meetings together. We've relaxed together. I've been in their homes. I've interacted with their wives, their kids. I've observed them interacting with their wives and their families. We've shared many, many meals together. We've prayed together. We've had fun together. We've taken trips together. I've seen how do they respond to sin in their lives and how they're quick to confess and to equally quick to forgive each other. They aren't afraid to confront sin in each other, and we hold each other to high standard of living, to standards of godly and moral and ethical and biblical living. Seeing them labor for unity, searching the scriptures for direction when we're facing difficult decisions. We expect and we give and we humbly receive constructive criticism from each other. There are likely some things that we don't do as well as we should at CLF. 
we may have more than a few areas where we need to grow and to mature. But I thank God that Covenant Life Fellowship has been blessed with a plurality of, of men, godly men, who lead this church and care for this church well. Men who strive to live up to the qualifications that Paul sets out here. We are prayerful and careful about who to lay hands on as either elders or deacons or ministers of the gospel. The credit goes for this to God. He is the one who's prepared and called the current group of men who lead this church in this point in time of history. We thank God for the group of men that has that are elders here. As elders at CLF, we have high standards and expectations for our lives, for our character, and I want to say that you should as well. God sets a very high standard for the character of the men who calls to lead and care for his people. The church should expect nothing less. It isn't an area that we want to compromise on. So you, the members of CLF, should expect and encourage nothing less than what Paul expected as he wrote to Timothy. Let's turn our attention now to point number two, the who. Who is called? The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Let me begin with this section with a quick comment that needs to be said before I get into it further in what I feel is really the actual heart of this entire passage. We have to acknowledge that this is a limited calling. The office of an overseer is limited to men. The Greek word that's translated here as anyone in the ESV or as man in the King James is the Greek word tis, T-I-S. And it's, the, it's, a, it's a Greek word that's in its masculine form, and it indicates very clearly that men are, are, are the focus here, and the men are the ones who are called to this office. This is in line with where we've been in Chapter 2, um, and if you have any questions about that, Dave did a great job expositing the last section of, of Chapter 2, that when Paul was dealing with the issues of the different roles that men and women have. And I'll just recur, refer you back to those messages if you have any questions there. As we get into the qualifications itself, it's a, it's a group of adjectives that, again, are in the Greek masculine form that Paul is using to describe the, the character qualities of the men who are to lead the church. So now I want to get to what I think is really the heart and the key of this entire passage. It's this. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. common question that comes up from men considering being a pastor is this. How do I know if I'm called? That's a good question to be asking. But Paul and Paul provides a very clear answer, a very objective answer, and he says it says this Do you aspire to the office? We need to focus on two words here. The first one is aspire, and the second one is desire. Aspire means to reach out for or to stretch out in order to grab a hold of, of something. The term describes the external actions. Desire describes there's a, a passion, a, a passionate compulsion in a, in a man's heart. The two words together work together to describe a man who, man who will be actively pursuing ministry because of an inner compulsion, an inner desire. Peter describes elders as those who are eager to serve. The focus is more on the desire of the task or the work of the overseer to serve the church and it's not so much about the actual office or the, or the title that comes with it. Being a pastor or an elder is work. It's hard work, but Paul says it's a noble task. People often ask what it's like to have a job where you only have to work a couple hours a week. 
They often ask in the form of a joking type of question, but if you're listening carefully, there's often a legitimate question in that the joke, and it comes from a lack of ignorance or what the standards of what God expects of an elder and what the job description is. So let me state emphatically here, our elders work hard. We work hard to care for the church. We work hard praying for you, teaching you, discipling, counseling, and leading the people that God has given us to care for. We see your needs. We see your hurts. We see your desire to learn, to be taught, to be trained. And we love to serve this church. And pastors, let me just say, pastors don't really get a day off or a true vacation. The weight of caring for and loving and shepherding is nearly impossible to leave at the office. We can't just stop caring for the church, uh, shepherding the church. We just can't stop. You just can't turn that off at 5 p.m. The burden your pastors carry for you isn't something that can be turned on and off on a whim. I just came back from a vacation. I was gone for a couple of weeks. And I'll tell you, I didn't, I, you know, I had to got away and I got to have some good times, but I did not ever stop thinking about you. I was missing everyone. I was looking forward to coming back. It's just not possible for a pastor to forget about his congregation, to forget about his people on his day off. It's not like we get 24 hours, I'm just not thinking about them, and we're not going to think about them. It's not, it doesn't work that way. It's, so it's hard. It's hard work. Let me say it's incredibly rewarding work. There's nothing better than to be able to sit down and pray with someone, pray for them that the Lord would open their eyes to see their sin, and then to see it happen, to see the Holy Spirit reveal that to them to hear them repent, to agonize over their sin, to cry over their sin, to ask forgiveness for their sin. Then it's amazing to sit with a family, an individual who might be hurting or suffering, and to be able to point them to their God who's going to care for them and knows how to comfort them like no one else can. It's exciting to counsel with someone or a couple and watch when the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, it finally opens their eyes to what you've been talking about. And they see it and they begin to make tangible change in their lives. My heart sings when I see the Holy Spirit open someone's eyes to great truths of Scripture and finally understand what God has been speaking to them about. I rejoice when we gather here on Sunday mornings to worship, even when life is hard, when it's been difficult when there are broken relationships, when we're dealing with loss, when we're dealing with hurt and pain and various hardships, but yet we come together to worship God for who he is. We set aside the cares of the world, the weight of the world, our troubles, and we gather together to worship God because he is worthy of being worshipped. So those two words, aspire and desire, are the essential components of, a call, of the call to the office of an overseer. It's an inner desire to serve God and to care for his people and the discipline to pursue it. Typically, when God calls us to something, including that office of an overseer, he gives us the heart for it and the discipline to go after it, to pursue it. It's not about the office. It's about the work of serving and caring for the people of God. Samuel Logan Brengel, who was one of the early leaders of the Salvation Army, summed it up this way. He said, it's not won by promotion, but by many prayers and tears. It's attained by confession of sin 
and much heart-searching and humbling before God by self-surrender, a courageous sacrifice of every idol, a bold, deathless, uncompromising, and uncomplaining of the cross, and by an eternal, unfaltering looking unto Jesus crucified. It's not gained by seeking great uh, uh, it's not gained by seeking great things for ourselves, but rather like Paul, by counting those things that are gained to us as lost for Christ. That's a great price, but it must be unflinchingly paid by him who would not be merely a nominal, but a real spiritual leader of men, a leader whose power is recognized and felt in heaven, on earth, and even in hell. Those who aspire and desire are motivated and driven to serve and actively pursue opportunities to use their gifts. Someone who thinks they are called to the office of an overseer or a pastor or elder, but isn't actively doing these things, the one who would be sitting on the sidelines, in a sense, has likely not been truly called to that office. This gets to the question of motivation. What motivates you to the office? Pastoring seems, again, like a cushy job. Spend a few hours reading bit of praying, an occasional lunch with someone, church for a few hours on Sunday. It sounds like a pretty easy job. I've already dealt with that. It's not. It's hard work. And incredibly rewarding work. Others are motivated by money. You know who they are. Many of them would be on TV. They have huge followings due to the nature of the message that they preach. They don't teach, though, about sin and repentance. No, following Christ is a means to wealth and health. You're a child of the king of the universe and shouldn't settle for anything less than living in a large home, multiple cars, nice cars, a fancy jet, great wealth, fancy dress, fancy vacations. All of that is due to you as a child of the king. All you have to do is give a faith seed or an offering to me and God will repay you tenfold. Others seek fame. Who wouldn't want to be the guy who stands up on the stage and waves his hand and dozens of people fall over slain in the spirit and are immediately healed from all sorts of diseases and infirmities? How cool would it be to use a sleight of hand to actually lengthen someone's leg and give them appearance that you're you're changing the length of their legs done by a sleight of hand? And then people think that you're some kind of miracle worker. Sane is trustworthy, Paul says. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The noble task is one of selfless service to God, the church, and the people of God. The noble task is one to see unbelievers come to saving faith. The noble task is to see God's people faithfully taught the word of God. The noble task is to quietly care for the church in prayer, in service, in discipleship, and counsel with the goal of the people more and more in awe of who their God is. The noble task is to point to God and allow him to receive all the glory and the worship. So Paul prefaces his list of qualifications with a clue on how to identify the man that's called to the office of an overseer. The first evidence of that call, the first qualification, has to do with godly ambition. A man who's called to this uh, office will be filled with a God-ordained aspiration. There will be a compulsion of the heart. There's a strong desire. And if you desire that, Paul says, that's a good thing to be desiring. Dave Harvey summarized it this way. He said, a man listening for a call is never a man sitting still. A key sign of the summons is godly ambition that's being channeled into action. 
That's why, as a leader responsible for weighing in on external call issues, I'm not just looking at a guy, who a guy is and what he might do. I'm looking for what he's already doing. That helps me gauge the degree of aspiration as well as the desire. So now let's take a look at the actual list, the what, what are the qualifications of the, uh, of the, uh, of the elder. With two exceptions, the list is strictly a list of character qualities of the overseer. The Bible does go give us input as to what the actual job description is, but that's not what Paul's after right now. He's after the character qualities. Let me say also that this list is probably not and shouldn't be considered as exhaustive, but more like a, probably more like a minimum of what the elder should be. Paul's most likely is addressing some, some issues that he saw in the Ephesians elder, elders, and he's calling those out here in this list. But we by should no means think that this, this is an exhaustive list of the qualifications. There are many other biblical uh, character qualities that God speaks of, and the elders would be expected to live up to all of those. Um, so let's begin. The above reproach. The phrase above reproach or blameless Many of uh, commentators can, uh, think that that is basically an all-encompassing quality of an elder that contains all of what Paul's about to list, plus anything else that you might come up with. So it covers everything. Above reproach literally means that there's nothing to take hold upon. There must be nothing in the life of an elder, his observable conduct, that could justify, justifiably be a cause for criticism. It's not referring to sinless perfection, it simply means that there should be no legitimate concerns about his man's character and his life that anyone could hold up and criticize. Why is it so important for an elder's life to be above reproach? Two reasons. First, there is a great potential, a greater potential for harm to the church when the leader stumbles and falls in sin. When a shepherd falls, there's often a devastating effect on the, on the church, on the sheep. Secondly, the sin of an elder is more hypocritical than another's because the elders are the very ones who would stand up here and teach you about what, how you should be living. And if we're not living that ourselves, that makes us very hypocritical, and that's not a good thing for a church to have hypocrites leading them and teaching them. So Paul's instructing Timothy to speak, seek out men who are spiritually mature. An elder seeks to be above reproach in all area of his life, of his conduct and his speech. The husband of one wife. The elder is to be the husband of one wife. There are some who would say that this means that the elder must be married, but that interpretation would have disqualified Paul and possibly Timothy. Others would say that this is speaking out against polygamy, which was very common in those days. Still others would use this to disqualify a man man whose wife has died and remarried or divorced and or remarried man. The phrase is literally translated a one-woman man. It means that if an elder is married, he's faithful to his wife. There is no other woman in his life, and he's completely faithful to her and her alone. If he's unmarried, he doesn't flirt. Neither of, neither of these are ladies' men. They don't flirt. We don't show any romantic or sexual interest in any other woman outside of our wife if we're married. The next three qualifications, sober-minded, self-control, and respectable, often are lumped together because they all deal to, uh, in some way with a man's ability to, to, to judge and his ability to control his behavior. So sober-minded, the elder should be alert, watchful, vigilant, and able to think clearly. 
The elders will have the inner strength to refrain from any kind of excess that will dull our alertness. An elder won't tolerate excesses in any area that could diminish our spiritual discernment. Elders will use wisdom and care in their eating, in their drinking, in their rest, in their sleep, in their entertainment, in our exercise, and in our relationships. An elder must be clear-headed in order to discern God's will for our lives and for the lives of those that we oversee. Self-controlled. An elder will have a serious attitude and earnestness about his, his work. He knows the importance of his work and doesn't make a mockery of the, the job. doesn't make a mockery of the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the gospel and the word that we preach. We don't let our behavior make a mockery of that. doesn't mean that we walk around all solemn and downcast. There's appropriate place and time for lightheartedness, but not when it cheapens or removes the seriousness of the work of the task that we're called to. Respectable. It's the opposite of, of, of chaos or chaotic. A leader in the church must have an orderly, well-disciplined life. God is a God of order, and he expects the men in leadership to have a life that reflects order as well. We aren't to be living lives that are confused of unaccomplished plans or activities. The leader is going to be disciplined in his mind and in his body and in his life in such a way that we accomplish the work and the tasks that we're given to do. Hospitable. This, is one, this would be one of the two qualifications that deal not only with, a, with character, but job description in a way as well. Hospitality literally means the love for strangers. And it's a telltale virtue of God's people. The elder is not to sit back and wait for opportunities to be hospitable. We are to be proactively pursuing opportunities to be hospitable. Our homes should be open and be welcoming to both the saved and the unsaved. Their elder's home is to be open to people, uh, numerous people. People are to be joyfully and happily welcomed in to our homes, to sit with us around the dinner table. The home, again, around the dinner table, maybe on the front porch or the back porch. It's an ideal place for gospel ministry to take place. It's an ideal place to share the gospel with the unsaved. It's an ideal place for discipleship, to pray together and to care for each other in the home, around the table. E. Stanley Jones, who was an evangelist or missionary in the early 20th century, he wrote of an experience that he had when he was preaching at an evangelistic meeting in the the mountains of Kentucky. And I add this because, one, it emphasizes how important hospitality is, but there's also a humorous point to this. He says, at the schoolhouse, I was invited to stay with a man and his wife. And when I arrived, I saw there was one bed. The husband said, you take the far side. Then he got in, then his wife. In the morning, we reversed the process. I turned my face to the wall as they dressed, and they stepped outside while I dressed. That was real hospitality. I have slept in palaces, but the hospitality of that one-bed home is the most memorable, understandably, and the most appreciated. (laughs) It's very weird. I'm not exactly promoting that kind of hospitality. (laughs) But I want you to see the heart behind this couple's desire to be hospitable. That's what you should take away from this. Able to teach. This is second qualification that also speaks a little bit about the job description for the elder. One of the primary roles of the elder is to teach. Elders are to be students and teachers of God's word. Paul gives 
more insight when he gives the, the description of or the qualifications for elder over in Titus. He says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, this is going to look different from pastor to pastor. Some will teach regularly from the pulpit here on Sunday morning. Others will teach in small groups or our one-on-one settings. Still others will teach in counseling settings and sessions. But regardless of the setting, the elder must be knowledgeable of the word. He must be passionate about it. He must be able to teach it and able to defend it. And, and Paul says to be able to rebuke those who come with a false gospel or false teachings. The next four things what an elder is not. The elder is not a drunkard. Now, this isn't a prohibition to drinking any kind of alcohol. It isn't a call for complete abstinence. There's no such command in Scripture. The elder, though, will be mindful of the many passages that warn against being a drunkard or drunkenness. And Paul issues it here specifically to the elders. So keeping in line with being sober-minded and self-controlled and respectful moderation is called for. Alcohol is a depressant, and it, too much of it can cloud and blur our ability to make sound judgments. Remember, pastors are on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and we need to be able to function at full capacity when and wherever we're needed. So the elder will know his limits. He will take into consideration the setting and be mindful of who is around him, especially when it comes to the the weaker brother that's spoken of that Paul speaks of in Romans 14. Not violent, but gentle. There's no bullies allowed in in the office of an elder. Men who are prone to anger or fits of rage, men who are verbally or physically abusive cannot be trusted to care for God's people. Instead, elders are called to be gentle. They are to be men who are gracious and kind and forbearing and considerate and peaceable. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit that should define all Christians, especially the men who lead the church. Not quarrelsome. A pastor's patience will be tested at times. He must not stoop to becoming quarrelsome or argumentative. He has to be able to disagree without being disagreeable. Leaders need to be able to present their opinions clearly, present doctrine clearly and charitably, and willing to listen to others, but without becoming argumentative. Not a lover of money. An elder doesn't go into the ministry to pursue a career of financial gain. The motivation is a desire to serve. First Timothy Six, Paul's going to write and tell us that the love of money is a root of all evil, and the pursuit of riches has caused some to stray from the faith. The man of God, on the other hand, will pursue righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, love, endurance, and gentleness. The call to flee from the love of money easily applies to more than money itself. Elders should flee from any form of materialism whether that be in the form of homes or or clothing or cars, the latest and greatest electronics, lavish travel, tools, anything that could be set up as an idol in our hearts. Don't forget, for for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. For if we have food and clothing, we should be content. The elder will be one who is content in plenty or in need. Materialism then will not distract us from the task that we're called to. Elders will work hard, and at the end of the day, we trust God to meet our needs. Greedy men are constantly thinking about what they lack. A content man lacks nothing. He must manage his own household well. Why? 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? A man who faithfully cares for his home will be faithful to care for the church. What's included here? Well, Paul explicitly talks about children. His children must be obedient, respectful, submissive. One comment would be here that this text does not require that the elders' children be believers. That's not what Paul is saying or trying to get at. Any Christian father should be teaching his children the ways of the Lord, encouraging them to repent and confess their sin, sharing the gospel with them from an early age. Times of discipline and correction are wonderful opportunities for us to show our children their need for a Savior. The father should be pointing them to trust God when they are, when they are fearful or anxious, teaching them to be thankful for all the blessings that they have from, from the Lord. But in the, the day, their salvation, being given the faith to believe, is a sovereign act between God and that child alone. It isn't unreasonable, though, for a child who's still living at home, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, to be taught how to be respectful and obedient and submissive. It also will include faithfulness in finances. Our bills are paid on time. We're careful to stay out of debt. The family budget reflects order, generosity, and the appropriate amount of savings and planning for the future. His wife and his children are taught the word of God. The home is kept in order and well-maintained. Elders, leaders in the church must prioritize their families. Men who neglect their families are disqualified from ministry. Our priority has to be our families. An elder is a good steward of what God has given him. This is done with all dignity, Paul says. Our homes and its operation should be a model for others in the church. If you want to know how well a man will lead the church and care for the church and manage the church, go spend some time in his home. He must not be a recent convert. Why? Because a recent convert may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Here Paul is getting at Christian maturity. An elder will be a man with experience, wisdom, and understanding. The point in here isn't necessarily about age only. A recent convert could be a young man. A recent convert could be an older man. Paul says to be looking for men who are mature in the faith. Spiritual age and maturity is more important than physical age. If, if it's self-age itself was a criteria, it was likely that Timothy could have been disqualified. He was probably in his early to mid-30s. The danger that a young convert faces and being promoted prematurely is pride. And, prou- and being proud is a target of Satan. Pride is always a temptation for those who are in leadership. But a spiritually mature man has learned how to deal with that. He's learned how to deal with this, this temptation through years of fellowship, communion with God, and likely has been disciplined and chastised by God numerous times in the area of his pride, and he's, he's learned to humble himself through that, through that. We've learned often through experience and hard knocks and discipline how to trust God and recognize that anything that comes through us is not of our own skills, not of our own abilities, but it's a gift from God working through us. He must be well thought of outsiders. Why? So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul here is referring to a man's reputation with the people outside the church, the non-believers. The world is watching Christians, especially the leaders. The elder is to have a good, godly witness to those who are not believers. Those who look to bring down and disgrace an elder should find no basis 
for that in our character, whether it be our integrity, our honesty, our work ethic, and so forth. Let their accusations, and they will accuse, but let their accusations be entirely based on our biblical values, our belief system, and our doctrines. John Chrysostom, the bishop of Constantinople, had this observation. He says, although Paul and the other apostles were often persecuted, they were never brought up on moral charges. Quite the opposite. They were slandered as deceivers and impostors on account of their preaching, and, and this because they could not attack their moral character or lives. For why did not one say of the apostles that they were fornicators, unclean, or covetous persons, that they were deceivers, which relates to their preaching only? Must it not be that their lives were irreproachable? So the life of the elder should not be the issue. It should be the message of the gospel that the world takes issue with. Men who teach, who proclaim and encourage godliness in the church, but live a life of immorality, dishonesty, drunkenness, along with those who would lie and cheat and deceive during the week, simply open the door for the devil's accusation. And in doing so, they bring dishonor to the testimony of the gospel, the testimony of the church. Let me wrap up now with a couple of application points. First of all, let me just say that everyone here should be examining their lives in light of this list that Paul has just given us. Keep in mind that God instructs a church to be like its leaders, to imitate and to follow their example. The elders are explicitly called to exemplify and live out before you lives that reflect these traits. But it's a mistake to think that as a believer that God holds you to some kind of different standard. Should only the elders not be drunkards? Should only the elders be self-controlled? Or respectable and hospitable? Are elders alone called to, called to be faithful to their wives? Shouldn't all followers of Christ avoid materialism and pursue gentleness? And would it be acceptable for any Christian man to not run his house in a well-organized manner, paying his bills on time, having his chil- have children who are disrespectful, not obedient, and not submissive? We are all called to live in some way this this kind of life, to have that kind of quality, character qualities. And finally, let me say to any men who might be wondering if they're called to this office or overseer, let me state first, chances are that the elders have already noticed you. A man who truly aspires and desires, who's truly called to the office of an overseer, will be or should be doing to some degree that work already on their own. If you're truly called, if there's that inner passion, how could you not be doing it? But if you're wondering, I'd encourage you to come and talk to one of the elders. We would love to sit down with you and engage in a conversation with you and explore that together. We'd be happy to help you in discerning your motivation. We'd be happy to help you in your character evaluation and give you some direction in your studies and help you to find places to, to prepare and to begin to put those 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 uh, those gifts to work. So if that's you, encourage you come come visit with one of us. We'd love to sit with you and and and, and pursue that and and think that through together and pray through that together. All right, let's let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. Again, we are grateful that you have called men to lead your church. And Lord, you have made it clear that they are to live to a high standard. And Lord, we, I can pray for the elders that we would all pursue that 
eagerly and that we would not settle for anything less. I pray that the people of this church as well would want to live lives that reflect these character qualities. Lord, these are not just elder qualities. Yes, elders are explicitly called to it. There's nothing in there, Lord, that another Christian man or woman shouldn't be striving for. Lord, I want to pray also that you would continue to bring elders to our church, that there would be men who are called, who desire and aspire to this office. Lord, you are growing our church. You're bringing more and more people here. We need more who can help with the care, with the shepherding, with the discipleship, with the counseling. Lord, we want to be a church that cares for people and cares for them well. So we pray that you would keep, as you keep adding to our numbers, that you would bring more men who can be elders, who can be deacons, and share the burden of caring for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.